Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and this week in Reykjavik, um, it's been pretty eventful when it comes to video game stuff for me actually. There is a festival here every year, uh, around this time of the year, called Riff, the Reykjavik International Film Festival, and this year they had a segment of the festival called Riff XR. It's all about video games and, this year, virtual reality experiences. So I've been down to the uh, the Bio Paradis, it's a really good indie cinema here in Reykjavik, um, to try out some VR experiences, and I'll be talking about that a little bit this episode. I also played a great game, very calm, you can hear the music from it now, a really beautiful, calm, third-person postman simulator <laughs> called Lake and that will be the featured game of the episode. And there have been a couple of other things as well. I've been uh, attempting to get into the the October spirit and play a few um, horror or spooky games to try and produce an episode of that type. I know that particularly the American listeners of the show are really into that seasonal spooky vibe. So I think I might actually compile a few of the games that I've tried into one episode I played a little bit of The Medium, um, the Xbox Series S and X exclusive, where you're a a psychic lady who kind of exists in two worlds at once. Kind of point and clicky, kind of walking simulator-ish. Kind of good. Um, I've also been playing a little bit of Moondown, a kind of black and white indie horror game. And I've also been dipping into Black Book, um, a card-based kind of witchcraft story about Eastern European folklore. So I think I might round those up and do, at some point in the future, uh, a Halloween episode. So you guys have that to look forward to. Um, It's not my usual vibe, but I do like to dip into those games occasionally. I'm a little sensitive to horror, um, personally, and so it's not my favourite genre of game. I'm not one of those kind of Resident Evil series stands and kind of getting my hands on every zombie game that I can and kind of... It's not a genre that I dip into often, but I do like to check on what's going on there every now and then. Um, And so this time of year is a fun opportunity to do that, to check in on the horror genre and see what I've been missing. But I thought I would start this episode by talking about that Riff XR VR show. It's a show... um, You know what a VR exhibition looks like. You walk into a room, there's lots of seats, there's lots of stands with headsets and hand controllers and headphones all kind of dangling from them with wires. You put on a headset, uh, you have a little um, card that tells you what you're getting yourself into, and then there's usually a helper who will help you get set up and explain the controls. Um, and I didn't have time to try all of the yeah, the different experiences that were on offer, but I did try four different ones. The first one was called Flow VR, and it is produced here in Iceland. It's actually a very simple one. It's one of those VR experiences where you put on the headset and you are taken somewhere beautiful. In this case, locations around Iceland. Um, I went to uh, a lake near the city, a very beautiful still lake that's as still as a mirror and surrounded by mountains. And I went there and then you can choose either a four minute or an eight minute meditation. And then you listen to someone speaking, they walk you through some breathing exercises and some relaxation stuff and some focus exercises. You just look around, you can see the weather, you can see the rippling water, 
Um, it's not incredibly interactive, you can't move, you can't do anything, so that's just a, a very basic, calm VR experience. That one was called Flow VR. It's good to get yourself orientated, I guess, especially if you're not used to using a VR headset and things like that. You just throw on the headset and four minutes later you come out feeling slightly more chill. Very good introduction to VR. The second one that I tried was one of the more interesting ones. Um, there were three that I will uh, talk about in a little more detail. First one was called Notes on Blindness. And this was quite a striking experience, actually. This one required some use of VR controllers. I think that these, um, a lot of these things were running on Oculus, and a few of them were running on Android phones in a headset, from what I could tell. Um, and Notes on Blindness, I think, was running on Android. So you put on the headset, you're taken into um, a dark space with blue points of light kind of scattered around you in a, a loose matrix. And this is a game based on the work of John Hull. And he was a blind man who lost his sight in 1983. And he started recording an audio diary um, documenting his experience, his early experiences of blindness. Um, and it was later turned into a film of his life. And this uh, VR project is an extension of that film. And so in this piece, um, John talks about his experience of blindness. He talks about how his relationship to sound has changed. He will, for example, you start on a park bench in this, this black environment, and John's voice comes on. It's one of his early notes about blindness, and he describes hearing the sounds of different kinds of shoes on a pavement and on grass, like the, the flap of flip-flops and the clack of heels and the thud of jogging shoes. Um, and those sounds start to happen around you as he's speaking. And as you look around, you see little flashes of light that kind of simulate where the sound is coming from. So it's kind of a, a visualization of what it's like to exist in a world based only on sound. And there are a few different scenarios that John talks you through. Um, there are a few of his different audio notes on blindness. I think maybe five in total. And he talks a little bit about the philosophy um, of, of losing sight and living in a world defined by sound. And he talks about his personal experience. He talks a little bit about um, an anxiety attack that he suffered one day when he started walking and realized that he was walking into a tunnel of blackness and became disoriented. And so it's quite affecting, actually. I found this to be a really effective and really worthwhile experience. Um, my favourite moment was when there was a thunderclap overhead um, and the sky kind of glittered. And he said something to the effect of, a sighted person always has a ceiling on the world. They can always look up and see the sky. But to a blind person, things only exist when they make a sound. And so thunder is like this revelatory moment where the sky becomes perceptible to a blind person. Um, he said it in a much more succinct way than I just did, but I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment. So you can check that one out at notesonblindness.co.uk slash VR, or just that URL to check out the, the project and the film. Um, I'm definitely going to try and watch the film. I think this was a really nice um, inclusion in the VR exhibition. The next one that I tried was called Hannah Hannah, and it's by Melody Mousset or Mousset, I'm not sure how you pronounce that name. 
Um, and this one was really fun. This one was like a, a VR toy, really. So in this one, you use your controllers, you point with your left or right controller, you're standing on a an endless sea, a rippling sea. There is in one direction, you can see a giant hand sticking out of the ocean. In another direction, some rocks. But basically, you're standing on rippling water. You point down, and when you pull the trigger on your VR controller, a small hand will appear from the water in the place that you're pointing with a forearm attached to it. And it will start off small, like the size of a, a small flower. Um, it looks a little like a kind of a mushroom with a hand instead of a cap. But if you hold down the button, the hand will grow. It will grow as big as you, it will grow bigger than you, and then eventually it will be towering over you. And if you hold on long enough, another hand will appear in the palm of the one that you've just generated from the ground, and then you can kind of pull way which direction you would like to point it in. And so you you end up creating a kind of a chain of hands all appearing from each other and forearms appearing from each other's palms into a kind of a huge chain that just you can make it go across the sky. You can wind them around by waving the, uh, the VR controllers around you as you're generating these hands. You can make them kind of clasp onto each other. I ended up weaving some hands together like string and making this kind of um, roof-like enclosed environment just made of hands and forearms over my head. You can also kind of use the controllers to zoom around with teleportation control. So if you hold down one button, you will appear wherever you're pointing. And you can go up the hands, up into the sky, and look down at the kind of the chaos of hands you've created on this glittering ocean environment. And the guy who kind of set up this uh, this VR exhibition, or at least was a part of it, is a guy called Owen Hindley. He works with VR and sound. He was involved with Riff XR. Um, and he said that there are kind of certain trigger events in Hanahana where th things happen if you persist with it for long enough. But I was only in there for maybe five or ten minutes at the most. Um, and I kind of I had fun with it and then moved on to another experience. I think because of the nature of this kind of um, tasting session when it comes to VR, you don't get time to kind of really sink in for an hour like you would if you had this set up at home. But it was really fun to try out Hanahana. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a very... It's very slick, it's very easy. Um, and I think with VR, the control and how you uh, make the player um, feel comfortable within what they can do is kind of the real challenge of VR, as far as I'm concerned. I think the make or break factor in how I've enjoyed VR experiences is how much uh, freedom of movement I felt in the world. Um, whether I felt in control or whether I was kind of trapped within a very clunky, um, unforgiving system of control. And Hanahana just nailed it. It's very simple. Teleportation control. You wave the controllers around to move the chains of hands. Um, it did what it did perfectly. And the same with Notes on Blindness. There was some movement where you just have to look at footsteps on the ground and you will start to move slowly through this black environment with points of light. So both of those used the VR equipment in a good way. They made me feel at ease. And the, the final one that I will talk about is um, something that I was... This was the one I was most hyped for, and the one that I liked the least, um, sadly. Um, and it's called The Under Presents. You may have seen this one. It's made by Tender Claws. Um, it's kind of a, a really ambitious theatrical VR project where you 
by this game um, and you kind of go into a, a kind of a club and as I understand it you are presented with kind of episodic experiences in VR um, that came in a kind of a regular serialized kind of way but at this festival um, it was the the opening stage so you have to get into this club which I believe is what the under is like a kind of an, a VR cabaret and to do that you have to go through a couple of basic environments to get there and, and as I was talking about the kind of the slickness and smoothness and consideration that is given to controls and movement, um, the under failed on all counts for me here. Um, it was on Oculus, I believe. So there were free movement thumbsticks that allow you to move very slowly. There was something called crunching, where you can kind of pull the landscape towards you um, to move. And then there was teleportation. Um, and to get into the under you have to just carry out a few basic tasks um, and a couple of very basic movements and one puzzle. Um, and I didn't get into the club, and I, I tried three different times to get through this introduction and get into the under. Um, and at no point did I feel fully in control of myself in the VR. Um, and I felt that the game was not helping me. I felt that it was under-tutorialized. Um, and so I often find myself just groping around, kind of trying to struggle through this uh, rudimentary situation to try and get into the game. And in the end, I just gave up. Um, I think there was there's one puzzle where there are lots of doors, um, and as you try and open them, they kind of pull away like paper and vanish. I think there is eight or nine doors, um, and you have to open the right one to move on. But there's a, a timer uh, ticking down, um, and twice I ran out of time because I was just using the free motion to walk around at my own pace. Um, and so the game wasn't letting me play how I wanted to play. <laughs> You're supposed to use one of the, maybe the teleportation and kind of race to all the doors. doesn't feel good. You don't want a time attack in VR. Um, and then there was another puzzle, not really a puzzle, where you have to wind a handle um, in, in a kind of a theater and then this announcer appears in the middle of the theatre and says, come down, come down here, let's go. And so I walked down to where he said, um, and then I was reset back to the start of that door puzzle three times in a row. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is this game wanting me to do? I just want to get to the goddamn club and see what this experience is all about. Um, and so I was kind of mad with that one. Um, I felt like they'd completely tripped over their own feet um, in the introduction to this game. And I was very disappointed. I mean, perhaps it's a fact that I was trying to learn how to use Oculus controllers for the first time. I'm not exactly sure with the buttons, you know, there's like a kind of a an index finger and a middle finger button, two thumb buttons and two sticks. Um, and so I was kind of getting myself uh, used to using these controllers. But I feel like proficient with learning controllers. You know, I've used a lot of them. I, I, I game a lot. And the fact that the under was kind of punishing me for not moving fast enough whilst not presenting a good way to move fast. Just felt like a miscalculation. But like I say, it's an art festival environment, um, so you're moving through experiences quickly. If it's something that you're playing at home, maybe it would be a different experience. You have the time to kind of navigate this in a way that makes you feel comfortable on your own equipment, in your own space. Um, but it was interesting to try it. I'm just bummed out that I didn't get into the under to see what they present in the under presents. So that was the VR experience. Um, one kind of basic uh, meditation experience, two interesting VR presentations, and one that fell flat for me. 
Um, I will also mention, just before we move on and talk about Lake, that I was also part of um, the opening party for Riff XR, in which a musician called DJ Flugvel or Gemskip, which means DJ Airplane and Spaceship, she did a really great performance. She's kind of a psychedelic musician uh, with electronic pop sounds and eastern scales and a really good voice. Uh, it's a real mashup of stuff, very playful, very bright. And she did a great performance where she was wearing a mocap suit, um, heavily pregnant, um, and she had a dancer with her also wearing a mocap suit. Um, there were cameras on the stage and they were being um, processed through Unreal Engine and projected onto the backdrop in real time. So as they danced, you could see virtual avatars for them being projected onto the artwork, which was a kind of a dizzying theatre stage with all kinds of crazy animals running around and flora and fauna. Very, very cool. Um, and then I played um, Sable on the big screen. Um, I did like a 20-minute route um, and I was accompanying a musician called Iris Thorarins, and she played violin and did some electronic music um, that was written in response to Sable. Um, so we did a 20-minute route around Sable. I kind of was working with a guy called uh, Jonathan Van Hove, who made the game Nuts. He was the guy who invited me to be a part of this. It's part of a series called Live Games, Live Music. Um, if you're curious about other games that they have done, check out the hashtag on Instagram. And you can see footage from a live jazz performance with people responding to Ape Out. You can see Iris doing uh, a session with Jonathan in response to Abzu, the beautiful ambient swimming game. And they've done a whole series of these things. So it was really nice to be a part of it. It was really nice to play Sable with a kind of a camera work view in mind, to be trying to uh, sail smoothly across the sand, to show off architecture, um, and to have Iris kind of responding to that um, and playing alongside that. She played quite a propulsive set with some rhythm to it. It was more um, grounded than the very, very light, floaty Japanese breakfast score. So it was interesting to play Sable in front of a crowd and interesting to hear Iris's music. And that night was closed by Aristocracia, which is a project by Ulva Eldjern, um, and he did a, a really cool set of music with this kind of augmented reality visuals. So there was a camera being pointed at Ulver, and as he was playing, there was kind of lightning crackling over him on the screen, and then there were voxels flying out of him, and he kind of dissolved into kind of rainbow prismic pixel dust. Um, and the camera was kind of moved around, pointed at people dancing in the audience, and so it was a really, really, really cool night of experimental games and technology and music all crashed together. Um, Ulva's show was wonderful. So this augmented reality visuals was really, really memorable. And it was really fun to be a part of it. Um, thanks to the, the Riff XR people and to Jonathan for having me be a part of it. And I will put uh, notes in the show notes. I'll put links if, in case you're interested in any of the things that I've talked about or more information on that festival or anything like that. I will put all of the links in the show notes. And so before I move on and talk about Lake, I will briefly mention that this show is patron-supported. So you can go to patreon.com slash gaminginthewild, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can get extra episodes, you can get an invitation to the Discord community, you can get sale recommendations, especially of indie games that are on sale on consoles, and you get to know that you're supporting this podcast. I use the money to get better equipment, to do things like buy a URL for the show, 
Um, I'm trying to save up to get a, a better mic for the show at the moment. So for a dollar a month, you can chip in, support the show, and be a part of the community. So thanks very much to all of my patrons, and thanks to you if that's something that you're interested in. It's patreon.com slash gaminginthewilds. And with that out of the way, let's move on and talk about the featured game of the episode, Lake. So Lake is a 2021 game by Gamius. It is published by Whitethorn Games. It is one of those strange games that is a Microsoft exclusive that's not on Game Pass, which seems like a very strange thing to be. Um, you would think that if Microsoft had faith in a game enough to um, make it an exclusive, that they would want it on the Game Pass service. But for now at least, you can buy it on Xbox and PC. Although the Google knowledge pane for this game, which I'm not quite sure if that's authoritative, I'm not sure where that knowledge in the panel comes from, also claims that it will be on Switch and PlayStation in the future. Um, this game has 71 to 73 on Metacritic across the three Microsoft formats. How Long to Beat has it at 6.5 hours to finish the story, 8.5 hours for completionists. Um, but I will say that my playthrough, I've just checked, came in at 9 hours and 15 minutes, and I was in no way a completionist. But I did take my time. Um, I did take the scenic route a lot of the time. I imagine that if you were beelining the story, then one, you might not be in what I would consider to be the, the ideal mindset to play this game, and two, that you could, you could get through it in apparently 6.5 hours. Um, so the developer describes this game like this. They say, it's 1986. Meredith Weiss takes a break from her career in the big city to deliver mail in her hometown. How will she experience two weeks in beautiful Providence Oaks with its iconic lake and quirky community? And what will she do next? It's up to you. And my summary of this game is, it's an aggressively mundane story game in which Meredith Weiss takes up a postal work attempt job in her rural US hometown over two weeks, she delivers mail around the lake, runs into old friends, meets new ones, and decides what to do with the rest of her life. And, I, I mean, aggressively mundane is, is quite, a, it's quite a phrase to lay at a game's door, but I think in this case it's fitting. So Lake is a game that is about small-town life. Um, there is no big drama in the game. Um, a lot of the elements that we associate both with video games and with traditional drama, so TV drama, theatre, literature, um, they tend to hinge on points, on flashpoints, on births and deaths, and sex and romance and double-crossing and, you know, all of this kind of stuff that they kind of pump up to give to give the drama some, some juice. Um, and this game doesn't engage with any of that stuff. Um, it's a game in which you play Meredith Weiss. She's a very pleasant, a very regular 
kind of woman in her 40s. She comes back to her hometown to cover her dad's postal route while her parents are on holiday in Florida. It's set somewhere in the rural US. It's a fictional town. And Meredith has to re-engage with her old life. She works at a computer firm at the kind of the dawn of the tech industry. Um, You'll get occasional calls from your boss, Steve, who is working on a monster deal um, on some kind of office software. Um, And Meredith is involved with that. So she has this kind of stressful big city job in the dawn of the tech industry. But she's come back to cover her dad's postal route to let her parents have this holiday. And so she checks in at work every morning. You get the van, the postal van. Um, It controls very basic. So there's a kind of a basic driving game here. And you drive, uh, looking at your mini-map, to points on the map, whether it's a letter or a parcel. You have to select the right parcel um, from the back of the van. There is a handy little address monitor on your mini-map so you can see which parcel is which. Um, deliver it to someone. If they are in, you have a little chat with someone, a little cutscene. You can choose dialogue options. If they are out, you just leave it on the doorstep because this is small-town America. If it's letters, obviously you just put them into the mailbox, um, get back in your van and drive on again. I did see that on the Easy Allies show, they have this little quiz question at the end of their podcast each week. And it's just kind of a piece of game trivia. And they all take a little stab at guessing the, the correct answer. And then the next week they give the answer on the podcast. It's a good show, Easy Allies. I recommend it. And a couple of weeks ago, their their question was for their quiz, how long do you think it takes to drive around the lake in Lake? Um, And I think that they guessed between 12 and 25 minutes and that it came in around, I don't know, 23 or something like that. So this game is separated into days. Each day you do your postal round. You can talk to people on the way. I think it probably takes half an hour to 40 minutes to complete a day in this game. Um, If you're playing the way I played, which is to take a very leisurely meander through the game. Um, And so you can play it episodically. You can do a day and then put it down, pick it up and do another day. I think that's probably a good way to play it because um, it could be a little boring if you binge it, to be honest. Like as I've described, the mechanics are quite basic. But... Easy Allies identified that you can get around that lake in 24 hours if you want to treat it like a a racing game. (laughs) Not that your postal van has any handling or any gears or any advanced controls at all. You just get in the van, um, pull the trigger to accelerate and turn occasionally, and that's kind of it. You can't crash in this game. If you bump into another car or if you bump into scenery, you'll just uh, stop, and then you have to accelerate again. You can't break the van. You can't have an accident. There is no real hazard. There is no real fail state. You just move through the game. You talk to people. You deliver the mail. When all of your parcels are delivered, you can drive back to the depot, and you can call it a day. You end your work day. Um, And choices that you have made in your day through conversation um, will affect the cutscenes that you get at night. For example, if you agree to meet someone, um, there are sort of social opportunities that you can choose to pursue or reject. Um, You can say that you will help someone with something, whether it's like a repair or whether it's, you know, moving something. Um, Steve, the boss, will sometimes ask you to review office documents, even though you're on holiday. And so you can kind of choose whether you want Meredith to be friendly, be insular, to stay home and read a book, to go out and meet a guy, to kind of 
uh, do work for her boss who's hassling her. You can kind of choose what kind of person you want Meredith to be. And so you'll get these kind of cutscenes where she talks to her parents on the phone and does these little tasks. You can choose dialogue options. And then the next day, uh, Meredith appears back in the yard, gets back in the the, uh, the postal van, and goes on again. Um, and so the gameplay is, I would say, aggressively mundane. I really would. Like, there is no drama. There is no challenge. It's just you go through this postal experience, this postal worker simulator. Um, you deliver the mail. You talk to people. That's the whole game. And the conversations that you have aren't dramatic either, um, at least not in the sense that we think about traditional drama. This is where the game gets interesting to me, because the kind of conversations that you have and the kind of conversation options that you get are sort of very incrementally different and very subtle. For example, if someone says, you know that guy, he's such an asshole, and you can kind of sort of shrug and say, oh dear, or you can say, yeah, I hate that guy, where you can say, are you sure? He seems really nice. And so you can kind of choose whether you're going to agree, be neutral, or vaguely disagree. But it's never strong. It's never a strong choice. It's a small, incrementally different choice that feels a little bit like striking a tone in a real conversation. It's the kind of choices that you make in tone when you're speaking to someone, and you might make those decisions based on how you think they'll respond to you. So if someone seems very fiery, you might be more willing, at least if you're me, or I guess if you're most people, you might want to kind of stay out of an argument with them, or not want to provoke them, or not want to kind of front up too much, and just kind of let them get away with saying things a little more, or not appear to be oppositional, and just get out of the conversation. So these are the kind of the subtle conversational dynamics that that happen in this game. And they might not be vastly consequential a lot of the time, but it did feel like one of the most realistic conversation simulators that I've encountered in that way. Like all of the options felt like genuine options. Um, And so it was kind of a social simulator in that way, um, which I found very interesting. And so the idea that Um, small conversations with people that are going through things or everyday conversations that sometimes you realize that whilst it might be an everyday humdrum uh, quotidian kind of conversation um, they are actually talking about big things you meet someone whose father died while you're away you meet a young mechanic who is kind of uh, choosing what she wants to do in life you meet um, a video store owner who is trying to make this uh, a cinephile who's trying to make this video store work in a tiny, tiny town when no one has a video player yet, really. It's like she's too soon for a VHS tape rental. And she's trying to decide whether to pursue her business, whether to do something else. And so there's a lot of people in this game that are going through the kind of just normal life choices that everyone goes through. Um, And these are the kind of choices that are actually very consequential in life. It might not be marriages, births, and sort of stuff like that, but it's the kind of career choices and the life direction choices that that everyone has to face. Um, And so it has this kind of, this texture of of reality that I, I think is, it's something that we see in cinema to have these kind of slice of life cinema 
um, movies, and it's something that we've seen in, in graphic novels through things like American Splendor, and it's certainly present in literature, but in video games, it's not something that I've encountered very much, and I'm very appreciative of, of Lake taking the stance that it does. It's a creative choice that I think has really paid off here. And something that I found very interesting about Lake 2, and in fact I find this fascinating, is that it's made by a Dutch uh, production house. Gameus is based in Holland, um, and it's extremely American environment. It's 1980s America, it's small town America. As you're driving around the lake in your van, you're listening to the radio, which has like a very small selection of constantly rotating kind of 80s soft country pop songs. Um, if you turn off the radio, you'll get the music that we're listening to now, this nice plucked string stuff. If people talk about movies, they are kind of classic 80s movies, like Chinatown and E.T. and all this kind of thing. So it has it's a period piece set in a very specific kind of halcyon environment of small-town America that is imagined by people that have never been through that experience. And yet, I mean, when I played this game, I could only imagine it was some kind of loving tribute to someone's lived experience of that. So it's very interesting to me that it's actually based on a, a kind of a collective memory that we all have from watching uh, TV shows and American films and the kind of the American cultural supremacy has led us all to understand what it means in, to live in small town America in some way. And so this is based on that that collective memory, and it's very effective at summoning up that sort of fake nostalgia for somewhere that we've never been, but that we understand. Um, and there's something about this, the reassuring conversations, the reassuring tone of life, the lack of danger, and the kind of the safety, and that you can mostly trust other people, that they they drive safe, that they are just um, good to each other. Um, and it has that kind of lovely halcyon feeling that is very specific and very warm. I would say that games like Life is Strange touch on that a little, but that's obviously also like a kind of a psychic, um, you know, Stranger Things type movie as well. But the moments that I like best in Life is Strange are, for example, coming into Chloe's room and seeing her sitting cross-legged on the bed with the sun glowing through an American flag that she has pinned up over her window um, and she has her punk posters and she has her vinyl strewn around and it just felt very domestic and very intimate in a certain way and, and Lake manages to summon up that feeling in, in a way that I really appreciate Open up the window I'm breathing in the last of September I can feel the wind blow And the late summer sky is like a dying ember And I realise at this point that I haven't yet talked about the the visuals of this game. It's a big part of the appeal. Um, if you've played Firewatch, you will... Um, you will have a rough idea of the art style of this game. It's third person, it's um, cell shaded, 
Meredith is kind of nicely drawn, but not overly complex. People have features on their faces and they have nicely drawn uh, profiles and they have good body language. They are believable, but it's it's not like, you know, it's not extremely complex. It's not kind of complicated motion capture, but it's it's nicely done character animation. Um, the, the depiction of the town and the nature and the lake is interesting. The trees, it's set in autumn and the trees are just glowing with colour. Um, the weather is dynamic. You get rain, you get clouds, you get dappled sunshine. Uh, the clouds in the sky glow really nicely. It, it looks familiar. It looks real enough. It's stylized, but it's real enough to, to put you in that place. So as you're driving around this lake, there is a sense of uh, familiarity that I get at least. I mean, I grew up in the countryside, so I know what it's like to grow up in a small town to get very, very used to small things. Um, for example, the, the route in and out of town, there's a, a, a small section of tunnel. Um, there is a part where the forest gives way to cornfields. There is a dam on one side of the lake. Um, there are certain viewpoints, um, and you will get used to seeing them. You'll see them every day as you drive around this lake. So by the fifth or sixth time that you're going around the lake, you'll be like, oh, look, it's the gas station. Oh, look, it's the diner. Um, and that that simulation of seeing the same thing every day brought to mind like a kind of real sensation that I remember from childhood. And I think that that's what this game is really good at. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. Um, I'm born in 1977. So this is the period I grew up in. It's pre-internet. There is VHS tapes. It's small town um, in Western society. And so it does speak to my childhood experience, even though Meredith is of, I would guess you would say, boomer age. She's 40 in the game, and it's set in 1986. Um, so it's interesting in that it's set in that particular period as well. It's a very different world to the one that we know now. Um, the internet has changed so much, and culture has accelerated so much. that It is a kind of a portrait of a time that is gone, basically, but that feels safe to many people. Um, because it was just simpler. Life was perhaps simpler then. And so these characters who are going through their life choices, life changes, uh, Meredith is trying to decide whether to go with her career or to... Maybe she has some attraction to moving back to this small town. Um, she has these social interactions. She has these kind of potential... Um, she has like tingles of romantic interest from a couple of different people that you can encourage or not. I'm not going to give away where that leads. Um, but all in all, I think this game does a great job of setting up a kind of a holiday into someone else's life, into a little piece of history. Um, it's like a little time capsule of what it's like to be in a small town in the 80s, uh, figuring out what you're going to do at that particular moment in history. Um, and it does a great job at that. I think for a lot of players, it will be a pointless, boring game. You see that reflected in some of the reviews. Some of the 6 out of 10s are like, this. nothing happened in this game. Some of the 10 out of 10s are like, this is subtle, different, interesting, and I'm, I'm buying what it's selling. And so I guess, based on the description that I've given, if that sounds like something that would be interesting to you, to just deliver mail and to sink, in, sink into this, this personal story, then, then maybe it could be a game for you. But I will wrap up this review by running down my little list here of the, the good and the bad of this game. Um, the good begins with the scenery. It begins with the art style. It begins with the, the, uh, the Firewatch style, kind of bright, beautiful, 
version of nature that this game gives you and small town details the, the telegraph poles and the the houses and the driveways the bikes on pavements these little touches uh, the products on the the shelves in the store um, and the kind of cars that people are driving it's a beautifully realized period piece to drive around and that in itself uh, helps smooth along the the uneventful gameplay uh, the details really are something like the signposts, the music. It all adds up to a really like thrilling picture um, in a certain way. You know, if you're just interested in that period and in a depiction of a place, in the same way that a game like Everybody's Gone to the Rapture depicts a very mundane, small English village, this one does a fictional small American town. Um, so it has that slow speed of life. Um, the, the conversation is great, the subtlety in the conversation, the, the real feeling situations where you can state a strong opinion or you can smooth things over. It really feels like you're inhabiting Meredith and it really feels like you're choosing what kind of person you want her to be or you do have um, some uh, choice in what kind of person you want her to be, how forthright you want her to be or how conciliatory. And if you want her to be a pushover or a firebrand, um, you can kind of choose that. And I love the voice acting in this game. I think that Meredith is actually a great creation. She has a lovely expressive face. She has a great voice. Um, and it's very easy to like her. Um, and that's the same for a lot of the characters in this game, actually. I found them easy to like, easy to understand. Even if it's like a, a dotty old lady or like a kind of a very forthright, fiery um, mom who's running the diner. Or like your childhood friend who's decided to stay in the hometown when you moved away, um, all of the characters have things to like about them, and I genuinely liked the voice acting, I genuinely liked the art style and the characterization. Um, it's just really charming, it's a charming cast, it's a good script, um, and it's nicely put together. Um, I enjoyed the whole thing, um, but it wasn't perfect. I would say that, to run down a couple of the, the bad points, um, it doesn't perform well. There is pop-in, there is slowdown, there are frame drops, the loading time is like Red Dead levels of long. Um, sometimes cars would vanish in the street. Um, once I got rain indoors, um, I clipped through the scenery sometimes. There's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on here. But it's an indie game. Um, you just have to accept a little bit of that most of the time, you know, especially in a newly released indie game. I do, I do think that they might well stick with this game and patch it because it's been pretty widely talked about. Um, partially because of the, the mundanity of it. I think people are just tempted by this hook. It's a game in which you just deliver the mail. And people are like, what? I want to try that. That sounds odd somehow. Um, but yeah, I mean, the performance isn't good. There was a, an atmospheric rainy day where the rain just stopped dead, like a tap had been turned off. Um, it's, it's unpolished. Um, and for a game this calm, I think details matter. If it's asking you to be immersed in a very slow game, which is simulating someone else's everyday life, um, you are snapped out of that if, if you've got vanishing cars and glitches everywhere. It has to stay grounded in normality, and it has to feel like a grounded reality. And I do think that those technical difficulties, they erode the core basis of the game to some degree. Not enough to damage my enjoyment of it, but enough for me to be talking about it now. Um, I would hope that that would be ironed out. Um, trees appearing from nowhere will take your mind off 
um, just wandering that happens as you're driving around the lake, noticing things. If you're noticing um, birds flying overhead, if you're noticing weather changing, seeing trees pop out of it suddenly, it just takes your attention away from the, the meditative state that this game can bring up when it's at its best. Um, I would also say that whilst um, there is a, a joke in the game when you meet the radio DJ guy that you can make that he only ever plays three songs, I think I only heard three or four songs, and you're listening to the radio in half-hour blasts, so that means you'll you'll hear the same song on every single twice on every single round of the lake. I think they could have put a couple more songs in here. It would have been worth the money to license a couple more songs to make this feel more real. Again, for the same reason as I said before, if you're trying to generate a convincing reality, and that is the hub and core of your game, you can't have three songs going around on the radio. Yes, the radio always plays the same songs, but it's once a day, not once every 25 minutes. Um, I would also say that whilst this game invites a feeling of freedom, of getting onto the open road, of being able to just... You can choose what order you do things in. Um, there is no prescription other than that you have to deliver all of the mail. It doesn't actually allow much freedom beyond that. For example, you will drive past the diner every day. You do know the owner of the diner from your childhood. But if you stop for a random coffee um, when there isn't a parcel to be delivered there, sometimes the diner is just closed um, sometimes there was just no conversation options there. Um, it would have been really nice, a really nice touch to have just a little bit of kind of ambient dialogue, I would say. So maybe someone else is working there and they just say hello and don't know you. That would have been a nice moment to miss your friend being on, on duty. That would have been like a nice life moment. Or just some kind of small bits of conversation. Um, if you stop off and talk to someone when you're not meant to, in inverted commas, which is like a, a step out of the prescriptive game uh, trajectory. It's like you're actually taking a choice like you would in real life. I'm just going to pull over and talk to this person that I know. And if they have nothing to say to you, it's just a little sad, you know. Um, I think it could have been really nice to have just a little bit of extra dialogue in there to make the world come to life just a little bit more. And on the same theme as that, um, a lot of the time you are delivering parcels to houses and if there was someone in the house, there would have had to be a few lines of dialogue um, and a character that you would see. And there aren't many characters. I think there are 20 in the whole game. And they are interesting. There is a fisherman, there's a lumberjack, there is a metal detector guy, there's a, a hotel counter guy, there's a couple of drifters that come through in a camper van, there is a young mechanic, there is a bunch of different people that you can talk to, and they're all fun, and you can engage with them to a level that you that you want to. You can um, encourage their interest, you can take up their social invitations, and all of that kind of thing. But while you're doing your rounds... It's remarkable how few people answer the door when you take them a parcel. Like, unless they are a main story character, they just don't exist. Um, and so that kind of, that opportunity to have ambient one-off conversations and small talk, small town, small talk, that would really fit with this game, they just didn't go there. And so most of the time, uh, you just leave the parcel on the doorstep. And that starts to feel a little fake and hollow um, at some points, like... It would have been a really good investment of time to put in a couple of characters that only appear once, even just two, um, just to give you that feeling, that small town feeling of 
of meeting these people, dipping into their lives, have some small talk and get on with your day. There are some days when you only talk to characters you've already met, you don't meet anyone new, no one answers their door when you take a parcel. And I found that that didn't quite ring true. Um, I was brought up in a small town in the 80s, and most of the time, there was usually someone home in most of the houses in the village. But I do feel a little ungenerous when I'm saying this stuff, you know, it's probably the case that most games could be better if there was time to make more stuff, um, or time to polish it just that little bit more. It's an indie game, small team, it does a very good job of creating um, a really memorable town. I loved driving around the lake, I loved pulling over to watch birds, I loved the changing weather, I loved the small talk, and Meredith was just such a memorable protagonist. Um, I liked the story, I liked the choices that were made in keeping it small. I think it's quite brave to put this much, re this much resource into a game of this type. There aren't many games of this type, so... You know, this could slot alongside the Gone Homes and, and the Life is Strangers, I suppose, but these very quiet, very grown-up, kind of grounded, subtle, um, slightly emotional, biographical-feeling uh, games that aren't focused on action, drama, fantasy. There aren't that many of them, and so this game does a good job at that. I'm glad I played it. I'm glad it exists. That's Lake. So that's Lake. Um, I hope you enjoyed that review. It was quite a long one, actually. It turned out I had more to say about that game than than I thought I would. I think that speaks to how interesting of a concept it is to do a game this simple with this little drama in it. It just it's more confusing than reviewing most other types of game. There's more that you have to delve into. Um, it feels more like an art project in some ways. Like what would happen if we made a game where you just deliver mail and talk to people? You know. It's like an indie movie of a game. Um, I would like to say thank you to Gamius for providing the code for that. I would also like to say that I'm very curious to hear what other people think of this game. So if you are an Xbox gamer or if you're someone that has played Lake, I'd like to hear from you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Gaming in the Wild. I'm also on Instagram, uh, YouTube and all of the other social networks. Um, I'm also on the Discord every day for the show. That's um, support, a Patreon supporter place where we all get together and we talk about games, we share what we're playing, we share screenshots, we share tips. If you would like to be a part of that, it's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild and members at all tiers get an invite and you're very welcome to come and join in. Um, I will also say that I really appreciate uh, reviews on the Apple podcast app, if that's where you're listening. Um, every rating and review helps other people find the show. And I always love to hear from people that have listened to the show, to hear what they thought of the games, to hear if they enjoyed the show, what they think could be better, what they think needs work, all that kind of stuff. All feedback is very much appreciated. So if you're on an Apple device, please do drop a rating on the podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be back next week with a new episode. Maybe it will be that Halloween episode, maybe it will be the Golf Club Wasteland episode that I'm going to record with Kieran Daly. Um, so there's lots to look forward to. Take care of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye for now.